Hello, everybody. Welcome to GBC. Thank you guys again for leading. Um, I, before, before we jump into 2 Corinthians 1, 12 through 2, 4, I have two quick announcements to make. Uh, the first one is the, the image of God evening that we're having on, on March 6th. I, I know that Rennell mentioned it uh, in the announcements. There were, there were a few of you. Actually, y'all were here on time today, and I celebrate that, okay? So first of all, let me say that. Most of you we're here on time today. So I really appreciate that. But for those of you who weren't, the Image of God uh, or the Image of God conference or whatever we're calling it on Monday, March 6th is taking place. We're, we're going to talk about from a biblical perspective, uh, abortion, euthanasia, and in vitro fertilization. So just all things pertaining to us being made in the image of God, trying to help people understand kind of the biblical perspective on all of those current issues. And, and look, I just want to say this. I, I know that some of you probably aren't thinking about that right this moment, but I promise you, you're going to interact with people who are, and, and they're going to want to understand what God says about it. And, and we are the priesthood of believers. And so even if it's not immediately on your radar, I, I think you should come and, and hear and listen. And we're going to do our very best to, to try to give good information at, you know, from a pastoral perspective and so from a biblical perspective. Uh, that's taking place March, chapter, March 6th, not chapter 6. And uh, <laughs> the other thing, the other announcement is a little bit more immediate. We have a baptism right after this service. Baptisms are so fun around here. Right out these doors and, and into the courtyard out there, we do them outside. Uh, several people are going to give their testimonies and then be baptized linger, stay, and, and listen to the testimonies. It's, it's a good reminder that God is still very much at work bringing people to salvation, and, and we can rejoice in that as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. So let me turn now to prayer, and we will dive into 2 Corinthians. Bow your heads with me. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for this time to be together. We thank you for your word how it teaches us, how it challenges us at times, how it is just so sweet to remember great gospel truths. I pray that we would. I pray, God, that the things that we can learn from 2 Corinthians 1, 12 through 2, 4 would not be quickly forgotten and that we would, we would apply them and that our lives would look more like your son's life, that our lives would be more glorifying to you as, as we go out into this world to be uh, your ambassadors. So help us, God, in all of that. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. When the first service, I was sitting right next to a little girl named Lane West. She's eight years old. She's great friends with our family. And so I was sitting there and I said, Lane, what do you want to be when you grow up? She's eight years old. She says, a veterinarian. I think that's actually a wonderful idea. My dog last Friday swallowed a Nerf ball, had an $1,800 surgery to get the Nerf ball removed. She, she became a much more valuable dog. And I'd rather give that money to Lane West than almost anyone. And so I, I like that answer. Now, if, if we were going to go up to the eight-year-old Sunday school class and, and we asked them, what do you want to be when you grow up? I think you'd get maybe another vet or two, but I think you'd get astronaut, I think you'd probably get a ballerina somewhere in there. I, I think you'd get a pro baseball player and a pro football player and probably a, a number of other things. Here's what you wouldn't get. Not one of those eight-year-olds up in our children's ministry are going to say, when I grow up, I want to be a flake. When I grow up, I want to be 
a hypocrite. But here's the point, and tell me if I'm wrong here. There are a lot more flaky people and a lot more hypocrites in the world than there are ballerinas, and firemen, veterinarians, and pro athletes. So nobody aspires to grow up to be a flake or a hypocrite, and yet a lot of people end up there. In our text today, Paul is being accused of being both a flake and a hypocrite. That's, that's what's going on. He's defending himself. What's happened, and I'm going to be brief on this because I, I don't think like diving into the nitty-gritty details really matters that much. He had said at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16 that he wanted to spend a winter in Corinth. And he, he, he hoped to come, and, and he ended up going a little earlier than he had thought because things were going bad, but he left almost immediately, kind of with his tail between his legs. Things were not going well. People were not siding with him. He was not somehow able to be effective and, and so he left kind of under the cover of darkness and so it's it's been kind of a bad deal because the people who were criticizing that made his his stay there his impromptu stay there very short after he's left they're wagging their tongues they're wagging their tongues they're saying this guy's flaky he said he was going to come for the winter he didn't come for the winter this guy's changing his mind all the time this guy's a hypocrite he he says he's going to come and he's, he's going to be really tough when he writes letters and then when he comes in person he leaves under the cover of darkness this guy's not consistent he's flaky he's hip, hypocritical he's all these things those accusations just to put your mind at ease with the apostle paul who wrote half the new testament they're not true but we can still learn a lot from his response. And that's what we're going to get in our passage today. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14 to start. For our boast is this, Paul writes, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand. Just as you did partially understand us, that one day, that on the day of the Lord, our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. Paul's main point here is simply this. He preached, he wrote, and he lived in the same way. That's, he goes through a lot of words, but, but that's what he's saying. In fact, he says, I preached, I wrote, and I lived the same way, and it was simple, and it was sincere. It was marked by simplicity and godly sincerity. That's what the text actually says. Now, I want to pause here, y'all. Can you imagine what your life would look like if you actually lived the same way in all circumstances? Can you imagine specifically what your life would look like if you were as zealous for Jesus Christ at work as you are on Sunday mornings? Could, could you imagine what that could you imagine what life would look like if you were the same person on Saturday night as you were on Sunday morning? If there was no difference in who you were or how you acted Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Or Sunday. Can you imagine what life would look like? There's, there's a guy in our church named Amin Edamadifar, and he's, he's Iranian. And so he's over in the United States on a work visa, and, and somewhere along the way, and I'm not even sure when, 
um, Amin became a Christian. And, and he was talking about Jesus in the workplace a lot, and, and his, his Muslim boss fired him. Now, I, I trust that Amin was doing excellent work because excellent work actually glorifies God. But he was also talking about Jesus, and he, he works in data and analytics, and his boss fired him. Now, I don't know Amin, at least not well. I, I found out about this because on Thursday mornings, our staff prays for all the needs of the congregation. And I'll, I'll tell you this, and I, I want to be careful here. Sometimes Thursday morning prayers are, are hard because we are carrying the weight of a lot of prayers for the congregation. There, there's a lot of cancer. And so we're, we're constantly praying that people would get better and that people would put their hope in Christ. And it's a good thing. I, it's, it's actually an honor. But it, it can be weighty. And you're like, oh man, there's so much hard stuff that we are contending in prayer over. So I get this prayer request for Amin, and he's lost his job, and he, he might not get his work visa renewed if he can't find new job, a new job. And he, he lost his job because he was talking so much about Jesus. That's a fun prayer. Like that, that actually really fires me up. Oh, that we would be a congregation who were losing jobs because of our proclamation of Jesus in the workplace. I mean, that, y'all, that's a fun prayer. Like, I, I am praying with, with great zeal and joy that, that he gets a new job and that he gets a renewed work visa. I'm pretty sure it's a work visa. Like, that is fun to pray. That is fun. If, if any of you need a data analytics guy, I think he also has a PhD, so he's smarter than I am, hire that guy. Like, you should want that guy. Here's what I think Amin, who is from Iran, remembers that, that maybe we've forgotten, okay? May, just maybe. Here, here's what I think we need to remember. We're actually all in full-time ministry. Have you thought about that? I'm not in full-time ministry any more than you are. Daniel's not in full-time ministry any more than, than any of you are. Like, we are called ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Like, that means you're in full-time ministry. Hey, don't think, you know, I get that I get paid a salary and, and maybe you're not on a ministry staff and you're not getting paid to do it. That doesn't mean that you're any less in full-time ministry. Everyone here is in full-time ministry. Live the same Everywhere, under the lordship of Jesus Christ with joy and with security, live simply, live sincerely in all contexts and see what God does through your life and through the collective lives of people living that way within the body of Christ. I, I think you have an amazing life if you can get to that point. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 1 verses 15 through, 20 now, through 22 now. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? 
as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to, the, to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So the big deal isn't the specifics of Paul's defense of himself. The big deal here is how Paul defends himself. It, it really, it's, it's going to be fascinating. Paul is being accused of being flaky. You said you were going to come for the whole winter. You left in the cover of darkness like you, you're not living what you said. He said he wanted to go and spend a long time, and he didn't. Now, that's the accusation. You're a flake, Paul. Look how he ends his defense here. Verse 21 and 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So let's, let's drill down on this a little bit. Remember, this is Paul defending himself against the accusation that he has been flaky, and he ends it with, God has established us. The, the Greek term for established is bebeao, and it means to make firm or reliable, so as to warrant security and inspire confidence. Bebeao, God has established us. God has anointed us. He has set us apart for his service, the service of Jesus Christ, the service of Jesus Christ's gospel. That, that's what it means that we have been anointed. And it's not God has established and anointed me, Paul the Apostle. It's, it's us. It's us. God, going on, has sealed us. Now, I've talked about this before, but just to review, if you were some royal family member, you, you had a, a family ring and, and it had your crest on it. And, and so if you were sending some document that was confidential, you would, you would fold it into an envelope and, and you would melt wax over the edge of the envelope to seal it. And then you would roll your insignia ring through that seal. And, and that, that marked the seal. So, so nobody could open the seal and then melt more wax. And, and so ultimately, the, the sealing there guaranteed safe passage. That's what, that's what it, safe delivery was guaranteed by this insignia ring. So if you got something from me and it had the Brazelton crest on it, you knew that the, the messenger hadn't messed with it. Okay, this is actually from me. It hasn't been tampered with. And so the text says that we are sealed. Sealed. We are guaranteed safe passage to our final destination. And then finally it says that God has given us his spirit as a guarantee. And, and the word guarantee there is arabone. Arabone. And, and it's basically earnest money. Not like Daniel earnest money. Earnest money like you're putting money down for a house, right? And, and what happens? Some of you have bought a house. Some of you are considering buying a house. And if you go and, and it's a hot market and you go, hey, I'm willing to put $500 down to guarantee that I go through with this transaction. The seller is going to be like, maybe. 
But if there are any other offers, I'm going to look at them first. If, if you say, well, I'm willing to put $2,000 down to guarantee if, if I walk away, you get my $2,000. The seller might be like, well, okay. If I put $10,000 down, now I've got that seller's attention. Because if I walk away, he keeps my $10,000. If I put $100,000 down, he's like, there's not much left to buy. Like this guy's really, really serious. So what does the text say? The text in verse 22 says, he has given us his spirit in our hearts as an earnest, as an arabone. Here's what that means, y'all. This is, this is stunning. This, this is so fun. I, I know some of you have heard this before. I hope this still fires you up. What that means is, is if God says, you know what? I'm tired of Wes. I'm, I'm tired of his antics. I'm tired of his shenanigans. I, I'm done with him. I, I told him that he was going to be in heaven because he's covered by the blood of Christ, but I'm revoking his salvation. I'm going to send West Brazelton to hell. He could do it, but he would have to send the third person of the Holy Trinity to hell with me. It's a pretty big earnest. You, you see the point? Like it, it's ridiculous. It, it would never happen. It wouldn't happen for me, and it wouldn't happen for you because God has guaranteed our inheritance. He was guaranteed our deliverance because the Holy Spirit is the earnest, is the arabon. And, and ultimately, all of this, that we have been established, that we have been anointed, that we have been sealed, that we have given, been given his spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, as a guarantee that, that this transaction will be confirmed. All of this simply means that we're incredibly secure. We're incredibly secure. Like some of you are like, I just don't know if God really loves. Look, if if Jesus' blood covers you, you're secure because of what he has done, not because of what you are doing. That would be legalism. If you're confident in your salvation based on your works of righteousness, we've got a problem. But if you're confident in your salvation based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, that his blood covers your sins, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. He is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. We're good. We're rooted. We're rooted in Christ. So let's back up. How do we get from an accusation about Paul being flaky? You know, you said you were going to stay the whole winter and you came early and you left early and you're flaky, man. How do you get from that accusation to we are incredibly secure in Christ. Like what, what is Paul saying in this chapter? How, how are we getting from one place to another? Here, here's how the argument unfolds. Verse 17, Paul says, have I been flaky? That's what he says, verse 17. Look at it while I, I go through this. Verse 17, have I been flaky? Verse 18, God isn't flaky. That feels a little bit political, doesn't it? Like you're like, ooh, that's a hard question. Let me answer this one over here. <laughs> That's not what he's doing. Just hang with me. So have I been flaky? Verse 18, God isn't flaky. In fact, God is faithful. His yes is always yes in Christ. Verse 19 and 20, our job is to proclaim God's faithfulness and also to live in light of God's faithfulness. Like 
Are we flaky? God's not flaky. Our job is to proclaim God's faithfulness. Flaky and faithfulness are, are different. God isn't flaky. He's faithful. He always keeps his promise. That's the opposite of flaky. And our job is to live in light of his faithfulness. Verses 21 and 22. Therefore, we're set apart. Therefore, we are secure in Christ. And so, Paul concludes, there's no reason for us to flip-flop on things like a fish landing on a hot pier in the summer where they're just bouncing around because they don't like it. Don't flip-flop through life. This isn't you're a bottom-sucking fish in the Christian aquarium. That, it's a different illustration today, okay? It, it's, I want you to live consistently. I don't want you to flip-flop all the time based on what, what you're, where you are on Sunday versus where you are on Tuesday or, or where you are on Sunday versus where you are on Saturday. Don't live like a chameleon. That's what we're talking about here. What's Paul saying? The key to consistency Text doesn't say this. I will just add this in. You get this for free today. The key to consistency and the key to living a courageous life. The key to consistency and the key to living a courageous life isn't simply trying harder. So many of you are like, I just want to be more consistent. I'm going to try harder. And Why do I keep screwing up? It's not just trying harder. It's being rooted to the right things. That's what Paul's saying here. Like, I haven't been flaky, and the reason I haven't been flaky is because I am rooted in Christ, and I am secure, and I am anointed, and I am established, and I am sealed. And my passage to heaven is guaranteed. Like, why on earth, with all of that security, would I flip-flop on anything? You see his point? You see how he develops this? This isn't about me being better. It's about me knowing what Christ has made me to be and living in confidence. So now that Paul has established the basis for his security, he can actually explain his real motivation for why he changed from what he said. And that you're going to see in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 and 24, and then the rest of the passage. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. Okay, the first thing I want to note is the first clause in verse 23. But I call God to witness against me. I mean, this is basically Paul saying, here's the God's honest truth. You want the truth, you can't handle the truth. He doesn't really say that. That's a quote from a movie. I can't even remember which movie, but it's a great movie. Here's the God's honest truth. If Paul had come as originally planned, as originally stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, it would have been an ugly rebuke. It would have been an ugly rebuke. And Paul is saying here, that was never the goal. Like that, I don't live for that stuff. That's what he's saying. That's, that's not what I want. And in fact, he says, the desire is that we would work with you for your joy. And, and the word work with you is sunergos. And soon means together with and ergos, where we get the word ergonomic, it means to work. Sunergos then means to work with, to co-labor or to co-work. And, and why wouldn't the Apostle Paul say that about the congregation that he started? 
Like, he thinks that they are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. So he's like, I'm not here to lord over. That's, that's not my desire. Sometimes that might be necessary, unfortunately. But really, ideally, what we want here is that we would all be working together. And when I come, I encourage you, and you encourage me. And, and in the day of the Lord, by the way, we're going to support each other because we're really going to know each other. It's like right now, we just don't really know each other. Like, you're... You're believing some stuff that's not true about me. That's what he's saying. Let me ask a question. Do you think Paul avoids conflict here? Yes. Absolutely, Paul avoids conflict. Now, normally, when, when we say, you know, I think you really avoided conflict, the implication here is it's because you're a coward. Now, if if you were saying that about me, I'd probably say guilty as charged. I don't love conflict. I don't. I don't think Paul loves conflict. But a lot of times the reason I don't want to engage in conflict is because I don't want you to think ill of me. I'm a people pleaser. I am. And so, like, I'm also an Enneagram 7, so if there is conflict, I'm going to try to lighten the mood. And, and I, normally, you can ask my wife, I will say something that is inappropriate in the moment. Not inappropriate overall, but just ill-timed to try to relieve tension. It never works. People say I smirk all the time. It's not that I am smug. I just hate being in conflict. And I'm like, ah, help me. Help all of us. Look over here. You know, I'm like, and it's because I'm a coward. But you can avoid conflict with a different motivation, and it doesn't make you a coward. Verses 2 and 3 certainly talk about an ideal that Paul wishes existed between he and the Corinthians. I mean, that, that is true. He, he's like, man, I wish when I came, I could just edify and spur you on, and, and you would receive that, and you would edify and spur me on and support me. I wish that that was true. In verse 4, though, after he has said what he wishes was true in verses 2 and 3, he says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. I think this is incredibly tender. Ultimately, what Paul is saying here is that love caused him to write. He, he didn't go back the way he had said. He's like, I think writing is actually better. And, and, and so in this moment, because of where we are in our relationship, if I went and, and was there in person, it would be a beat down. I, I would prefer to write and get my thoughts out. But he also says love causes him to anguish over their sin. He's like, there, there is relational disharmony here, and I hate it. I hate it hate it and it's because I love you and ultimately what you need to know is he, he doesn't come back and visit them yet he, he writes 2nd Corinthians to prepare the way for another visit but ultimately the big picture here is Paul doesn't check out he, he doesn't just ignore the Corinthians he, he doesn't give up on the Corinthians the Corinthians are a dumpster fire church they, they have been a disaster look I'll be honest with you if I was the Apostle Paul and I was writing half the New Testament, and that's what Paul is doing, and, and I've got this title, Apostle, 
And the church that I planted in a significant way turned on me and didn't support me and, and mocked me and made fun of me and believed lies about me, I might find myself too busy to make it back to Corinth. That, that's just me. I, I'm not Paul. But, but I promise you, that would be my temptation. That's not really speculative. A, a couple of years ago, it's been a a lot of years ago, there was a guy who, who became a Christian at GBC. And, and I know that he became a Christian at GBC because one day he came to me and he said, hey, I'd like to disciple you. And I know that might seem weird because I became a Christian at GBC two years ago, but I want to disciple you. And I was, I was like, okay. My first thought was, don't be arrogant guy. Like, I need to pray about this. I need to take this seriously. Like, who am I to say that a guy who's been walking with Jesus for two years doesn't have something to teach me? And so, like, I'm, I'm like, okay, this is, it feels weird. I'm not going to lie about that. But humble yourself, pray, ask for godly counsel. And so, I come back a week later, and I've been like, look, hey, some of the elders at Grace Bible Church are really investing in me. There's, there's another pastor in town, Tom Douthit, um, who is investing in me. And, you know, I, I feel like that's probably what I need to focus on right now. Thank you, though, for your offer. About a week later, he and his wife left our church, which was awkward because they lived in our neighborhood and I drive by their house all the time. Look, here's the deal. I don't think I outwardly sinned against them. I, I didn't say, you're a so-and-so, you're a chump, you're, you know, who, who are you? I didn't do any of that. I just put them on the shelf. I, I tried not to think about them. I, I, I didn't pursue them. I, I was like, okay, you're leaving. In essence, I was like, you're dead to me. And when I read this, and I play the tape again, I kind of checked out on that family. And I think Paul doubles down. Like it, it just feels like the Corinthians are doing in mass a lot of what was happening to me. And he doubles down. He, he presses in. What are you doing in regard to your most painful or difficult relationships. What are you doing? Have you put people in relational timeout? I can do that. Have you done that? You, you probably, even as I've thought about this, have, have people in your head that you've checked out on, you've given up on. Is there anyone out there that you're struggling to find the love that would enable you to move toward those people? And I get that they've hurt you. Like, I get it. Are you struggling to find the love to move toward them? Maybe you need to backtrack. Maybe you need to go back and you need to look for something. I don't think you need to look for love. 
just try harder. I got to love them. Like, I'll tell you something about me. Mary will tell you that this is true. Three or four days a week, I wake up in the morning and I'm generally going to Tacos a Go Go or Island Grill on Bunker Hill to meet with one of you people. And I'll be in a rush out the door and I won't be able to find my keys. And I'm like, oh gosh, where are my keys? And, you know, somebody is generally still asleep. I'm not saying who. And I'm looking for my keys, but I don't look for my keys. This is, this is what you need to understand. I, I don't look for my keys. I look for my pants. And that's not just so you know, because I had some sort of bender the night before and, you know, like nothing like that. I got to think back and, you know, the pre-dawn light of day and my, I'm still a little groggy. When I came home last night, what was I wearing? Was it exercise shorts? Had I been to the gym? Was was it my work clothes, which is khaki shorts? Had I, had I dressed up for a dinner of some sort and I'm looking for my blue jeans? <laughs> Y'all, I told this to the 9 o'clock service. That, that actually isn't funny. That, I did not, like, that, that wasn't like a joke. That, I can't believe anyone wears anything fancier than blue jeans to a dinner. That, that to me seems so dumb, but to each his own, we live in grace. I'm trying to figure out what pants I had on, because if I can figure out what pants I had on, I can find my keys. My, my keys are going to be in the pant pocket. And so that, that's what I'm looking for. Here, here's the point. Love is your keys. What you're really looking for so that you can find love is your pants, which is security in Christ. You go back, you backtrack. When was the last time I felt really secure in Christ? When was the last time I understood and I remembered that, that God has established me? He has anointed me. He has sealed me. And he has given the third person of the Holy Trinity as a guarantee. And I am absolutely secure. You find security in Christ. You, you remember where you left that. You get love with it. Like, security in Christ is Paul's defense against flakiness. It's also what empowers him to love people who are difficult to love. Like, it's verse 21, 22, it's the epicenter of this passage. It, it's what you need to memorize. It's what you need to meditate on when life feels insecure. It really is where almost everything else in this life is held. Find security in Christ. Find identity in Christ. Everything else will fall in line. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this would not just be an academic pursuit. I, I pray that we would experience security and all the joy that comes with security in Christ. I pray, God, that we would meditate on what it means to be established, what it means to be anointed, what it means to be sealed and guaranteed safe passage. Father, I pray that we would live consistent lives. I pray that we would live heroic lives. I pray that we would live loving lives and that you might be glorified. 
in all of that. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.